You're listening to the Keep Going Podcast, where we encourage one another to keep going after the heart of God, because He's our only hope. I'm Nika Maples. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 1 of the Keep Going Podcast. Right now we're in a series called A Walk Through the Psalms. In today's episode, we look closer at Psalms 1 through 7. I want you to know I use the New Living Translation as my primary text because it's readable. And I'll tell you when I vary and use a different translation. I don't approach these podcasts as a scholar, but as a lover of the Word who wants to share simple spiritual observations from my own daily Bible reading. Challenging times in my life, I would close my eyes, let the Bible fall open, and place my index finger somewhere on the page. Then I'd open my eyes and read the Bible verse applying it to my life, sort of the way I would read from a slip of paper in a fortune cookie or read the floating message in a magic eight ball. Most of the time, I ended up with my finger right on a psalm. And maybe you've experienced the same thing. Because when we let the Bible just fall open, it most often falls open to the book of Psalms. Psalms is right in the center of the Bible, and that is not a mistake. Sometimes we treat it like we would any poetry book. In our recommended reading list to friends, it might take a back seat to meatier books of prose. But Psalms is meaty. It's the longest book in the Bible, and it carries some heavy spiritual principles. Psalms is one book comprised of five books. Those five books follow a pattern that beautifully mirrors the first five books of the Bible itself. Another word for the first five books of the Bible is the Pentateuch. Penta is a Greek root meaning five, as in the Pentagon, representing five military branches, or Pentatonics, a group of five musical artists. The Pentateuch is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So the first book of Psalms corresponds to the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And the second book of Psalms corresponds to Exodus, and so on. For the next six podcast episodes, we will be in the first book of the Psalms, lasting for 41 chapters. So, let's keep our eyes open for the way that it parallels the book of Genesis. We notice the parallel immediately, don't we? Genesis begins with the story about a fruit-bearing tree. And so does book one of the Psalms. A little background here. In Genesis 3, we see the future of the human race hinges on a decision. God has given instructions. Adam and Eve may eat of any tree except the tree that stands in the center of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve easily accept this command, and they have no intention of eating from the forbidden tree. But you know what happens next. The serpent comes and hisses that God has withheld his best from them, so they should probably just go ahead and eat the fruit. For a moment, Eve wavers between obedience and disobedience, but then she takes a bite. She chooses to go her own way instead of following God's guidance for her life. Disobedience was the path the serpent wanted her to take, and she listened to his words of guidance instead of to God's. She willingly moved in the direction of her downfall. 
Now consider Psalm 1. I'll read from it here. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, but they delight in doing everything the Lord wants. Day and night they think about his law. They are like trees planted along the river bank, bearing fruit each season without fail. Their leaves never wither. In all they do they prosper. But this is not true of the wicked. They are like worthless chaff scattered by the wind. For the Lord watches over the path of the godly, but the path of the wicked leads to destruction. In Psalm 1, we not only face the choice whether to eat from a tree, we face the decision whether we will be that tree. If we disobey, instead we'll end up like chaff, the husk on a kernel of wheat. A tree is deeply rooted when wind comes, but at the slightest stirring of a breeze, chaff just blows away. We get to decide how our lives will look in times of trouble. This leads me to a theme that emerges in Psalm 1 and will be repeated in chapters to come, the theme of separation. In chapters 1 through 7, actually throughout the whole Psalms, we see the separation of the godly and the wicked. I'll tell you right now, I don't like the word wicked. It's too wicked. I prefer to use a kinder word, something like ungodly. Why does the Bible use the godly and the wicked instead of the godly and the ungodly? That sounds nicer. Sure, ungodly people may be ungodly, but they are not always wicked. Wicked people murder. Wicked people steal. Wicked people are corrupt and unfaithful, and they represent the farthest point on the human spectrum. Right? Okay, before we take another step on our journey, we must address the definition of the word wicked, because the word wicked is not going away, even if you or I want it to. We'll trip over it again and again on our walk through the Psalms unless we deal with it now. The best way to explain the separation of the godly and the wicked is by looking at a hidden narrative in the Psalms. It's hidden because the story actually is told elsewhere and not in the book of Psalms, but we see the hints of the story here just the same. To read the fascinating tale in all of its dramatic detail, go to 1 Samuel 9 through 31. Now, I'll summarize all of that here. The people of Israel want a king, and the Lord allows it, instructing his prophet Samuel to anoint Saul as the first king. He happens to be the tallest and most handsome man in the land, but he doesn't come from a royal family, and he has no leadership experience to speak of. Still, all he has to do to be successful as the first king is to listen to the word of the king of kings. All Saul has to do is obey God. He doesn't. Again and again, Saul disobeys. He offers sacrifices that only a priest should offer. He builds a giant monument to himself when he knows he's not to make an engraved image. After one battle, he takes some of the plunder that God told him not to take. And even when the prophet Samuel reprimands Saul on these errors, he doesn't learn. He continues in disobedience, thinking that God will accept partial obedience instead of the real thing. Saul wants to go his own way, and eventually 
God lets Saul set out on the path that he has made for himself. At that point, Saul sees it. Going our own way leads to destruction. But by the time he does, it's too late. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you, Samuel tells Saul. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom must end, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. The man after God's own heart, you know who Samuel's talking about, right? It's David. And after David is anointed the next king of Israel, but before Saul is actually removed from the throne, Saul decides to kill David, and he hunts him for a long and difficult period of time. But he can't thwart the plan that God already has set in motion. This is the hidden story in the book of Psalms. Well, one of them. We'll get to the other one later in our podcast series. Oh, we feel David's presence in the book of Psalms. We see his authorship on many of them. Don't miss the fine print at the top of each psalm, giving you the context for the words and often giving you the author. David did not write the entire book of Psalms, as many people mistakenly think, but he did write a good portion. He's credited with 73 out of 150 psalms. And there are a few anonymous psalms that very well may have been his too. David is definitely a visible persona in the psalms. And Saul? He is an invisible persona in the psalms, although not the only one. We'll learn more in the coming chapters. And we'll see in the coming chapters that David refers to Saul repeatedly although not by name. So for now, let's let the invisible man named Saul take shape before us. If we need a quick reference point for godliness versus wickedness, all we need to do is look at David next to Saul. There, we discovered that my personal definition of wickedness is a tangled mess. Remember at the first of this podcast, I said, Wicked people murder, they steal, they're unfaithful, etc. Well, these descriptions do apply to Saul, as we expect, but they also apply to David, to the man who represents godliness, to the man after God's own heart. I have gone around and around with these facts in search of understanding, and I found only one suitable approach. Yes, Both men dabbled in disobedience more than once, and in both cases, their disobedience even caused innocent people to lose their lives. But the difference between David and Saul, the difference between the godly and the wicked, is not exactly what they do, but the way they look at what they do. David disobeys, and the moment he realizes he's done it, he says, I recognize my shameful deeds. They haunt me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. 
But when Saul disobeys, he never admits it. And he says, but I did obey the Lord. I carried out the mission he gave me. David agrees with God's assessment of his actions. He doesn't defend himself when God confronts him through a prophet. But Saul denies God's assessment of his actions. He defends himself when God confronts him through a prophet. Agreement with God's assessment has two names. When we agree with him and then follow his guidance, it's called obedience. When we do not follow his guidance and later agree with him that we should have, it's called repentance. Repentance takes us off the path that leads to destruction, and it returns us to the path that leads to life. Years ago, I was talking to an acquaintance, and once I abruptly asked him, Hey, do you believe in God? He must have been only 18 or 19 at the time, but his response showed the insight of someone with much more life experience. He answered without one second of deliberation, Nika, I can feel the back of my tooth and know there is a God. There is evidence of him everywhere. But do I live like I know there is a God? That is the real question you're wanting to ask. Mere belief is not the difference between the godly and the wicked. Both of them can feel the backs of their teeth and know there is a God. His evidence is everywhere. The difference between the godly and the wicked is whether they live and act from that belief. Obedience is what separates us. That's why it bothers me when I've heard Christians say, I'm a sinner, or we're all just sinners in need of God. Perhaps this type of talk sounds humble. In today's society, we don't want to sound high and mighty. We try to avoid a holier-than-thou attitude. Some people think this sinner talk does the trick, but I think it reflects a dangerous mindset. See, I'm not a sinner anymore. Paul writes, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. The key word is were. God's love and Christ's blood did something. They changed us. To continue to call ourselves sinners is like continuing to call ourselves orphans, even though God has adopted us as his own children. The life of a sinner is characterized by disobedience. But we who are children of God, we who know Christ, should no longer live this way. The life of a child of God is characterized by obedience. Another word for a sinner is a chronic disobeyer. Well, now the Spirit of God has changed me, and I'm a chronic obeyer, and I hope you are too. So no, I'm not an orphan, and I'm not a sinner anymore. But yes, I still sin. I still disobey, as we all do. Yet I don't define myself by those moments. Think of it this way. The other day, I was talking to a child I really care about, and he got a little disrespectful and threw a fit about something, which was very uncharacteristic of him. I said to him the first thing that came to my mind, Why are you acting this way? This is not who you are. And now when I sin, I say the same exact thing to myself. I no longer gauge my spiritual health by the length of time between moments of disobedience in my life. Instead, 
I measure my spiritual health by the length of time it takes me to get back into agreement with God after I have sinned. David realigned himself instantly, and he repented. Saul was perfectly comfortable in disagreement. We never want to feel comfortable in disagreement with God. So when we read that the godly and the wicked are separated, it means that those who obey and those who chronically disobey are separated. They are on paths going in two different directions. And one of the most important things that determines whether you and I obey is whether we know what to obey. Recently, I received a speeding ticket on a road that I drive every day. When the officer told me that I was traveling 55 miles per hour in a 45 mile per hour zone, I said, oh, really? Isn't the speed limit 50 right back there? I I could have sworn. He looked at me coolly and said, no, ma'am, it's 40. Sure enough, the next time I was driving that road, I made a special effort to slow down and look. The speed limit was 40, all right. I had driven past that sign so many times and probably so fast, I had stopped seeing it. It can happen the same way with the Bible. One of my favorite writers, Dallas Willard, writes, when it comes to the word of God, familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. We've seen it so many times, we've stopped looking at it. We need to slow down and read. That's what this stroll, this walk through the Psalms, one at a time, is about. It's about becoming reacquainted with the Word in the here and now. Not the Bible we used to know as kids, but the Bible we need so desperately today. Because it's no secret, we're a long way from Genesis. The fruitful tree in the center of the Garden of Eden is in our past And Adam and Eve's decision to disobey their heavenly father brought about a curse. What's done is done. That tree was the way it all began. But who knows how far we are from Revelation. There is a fruitful tree in the center of heaven, and that is our future. Christ's decision to obey his heavenly father has broken that curse. John describes his vision of heaven this way. The river flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit. With a fresh crop each month, the leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything. That tree is the way it all will end. Or maybe I should say the way it will never end. And did you hear the description of the tree? A fresh crop of fruit each month with leaves that are used for medicine to heal the nations? Does it remind you of anything? The Bible falls open and we find it right there. The godly are like trees planted along a riverbank, bearing fruit each season without fail. Their leaves never wither. Dear friends, there is a tree in the center of the Bible, in the here and now, in the days between the tree of our beginning and the tree of our eternity. Maybe the way the Bible falls open randomly isn't so random after all. 
Maybe we need to be reminded that we aren't where we were and we're not where we're going, but here there is still a tree awaiting our decision. There is still time. There's still time to meditate on God's word day and night, and obedience as a response to his word will make us into deeply rooted trees who are able to withstand when the great winds arise. The only question is, is that who we are really willing to be? hope you've been enjoying your daily reading of the Psalms. If you're not on my email list, go to nikamaples.com to sign up and receive your Psalms reading schedule and a free hope poster every month. I invite your questions and comments through my Facebook page or in the comments section on my blog. The show notes for this podcast are found at nikamaples.com forward slash S1E1 for season one, episode one. And now may God, the source of hope, Fill you with joy and peace as you trust in Him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. I'll talk to you soon. Until then, keep going. My enemies, I will overcome it. And my foes rejoice, even when I fall. I don't want to fall.